Jesus Christ. He is the maker of heaven and earth. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the Son of God. He is the God-man. He is our humble servant. He is the man of sorrows. He is the good shepherd. He is the prince of peace. He is the wonderful counselor. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the dragon slayer. He is the sinless savior. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the sinner's friend. He is the great high priest. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And he is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. His love is glorious. His love is marvelous. His love is generous. His love is graceless. His love is matchless. And His love is priceless. He came again as a humble servant. He's coming again as the King of kings and a Lord of lords to judge the living and the dead. And friends, this is the most important moment in your entire life. Jesus, while on the earth, asked this question, Who do you say that I am? That is Jesus' question for you today. Who do you say that he is? Who is Jesus? Um, by the way, you're not supposed to preach that way in Seattle because it's a very post-Christian culture. I think a lot of times the things that people tell us, you can't do this, are the very things that we should probably do, right? That's the thing with anybody. If they ever try to water down your passion for the Lord, ask yourself, don't ask them, but ask the source. Who is telling me this? Do they love Jesus? Do they serve Jesus? If they don't, and if they don't, then maybe that's the enemy speaking through them, right? Just just a little thought. Okay, so let's go to a Philippians chapter 2. We'll get to this text in just a minute. Um, but we're going to study the unity of the person of Christ and the work of Christ tonight. Last two weeks, uh, other than last week, the special message, we looked at the deity of Christ. And Jesus is God in the flesh, right? Like not sub-God, but God in the flesh. And then we looked at the humanity of Jesus. And Jesus is how much human? Yeah, he, he is Human. Remember that little that little notch that we learned also that Jesus, we could say that Jesus is more human than us. Because Jesus is not a sinner. Question, did God create Adam and Eve as sinners? No. They had perfect libertarian free will, right? They could choose God or they could reject God. So in that sense, sin is almost like a virus, right? Virus that once it attached to Adam and Eve, grabbed a hold of every single one of their descendants. That's why we are born sinners. You know, our children and so forth are sinners all the way down until the Lord fixes the whole problem with the return of Christ. But Jesus was different. And upon what basis can we say that Jesus was not born a sinner like the rest of us? Virgin birth. Okay. Remember that, that, that theologian who said, you know, it's not a big deal. It's only mentioned twice in the Gospels. And our response to that is many, 
But one in particular we looked at is how many times does God have to say something for it to be true? Now we do know that God says Moses, Moses, Samuel, Samuel, right? Eli, Eli, so forth, because men have to be told things twice. Alright, we're going to move on. So, um, when it gets confusing, okay, this is the point. People say, alright, so Jesus, Jesus is, is God, he's man, he's born a virgin, but okay, so what you're saying is Jesus is fully divine. Is that what we're saying? Yes, fully, fully. We're also saying Jesus is fully human. So then people are like, so Jesus is like a God slash humanoid hybrid. No, that's not what we're saying. Okay? And here's the two premises. This should be uh, on your notes. Number one, we, we understand that we have to say, according to Scripture, and this is not we're trying to put anything on Scripture, but this is what Scripture says, so therefore we believe it. Number one, redemption, what Jesus did on the cross, must be by a human to apply to humans. Right? So there's a need for the Redeemer to be a human. Now, why would it be necessary for the Redeemer, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior, to be a human? Well, you've got to be one of them, right? In order for your sacrifice to apply to them. But then he had to, like, surpass, like, all the, you know, he didn't ever sin. Didn't he have to accomplish living the perfect life and living a sinless life? Yes, in fact, um, if you are taking notes, uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 4, um, it says that Christ is the end of the law for or to righteousness. Romans 10, 4. And I think what you're asking there is, you know, Jesus' point was not just to be born as a human, right? But what was he supposed to do as a human? Well, because, like, it wouldn't make sense for him, for him to be anything else when... He's trying. He's not trying to save like a bird. He's trying to save humans. Mm-hmm. So he has to accomplish what we failed to do. Mm-hmm. Exactly. To save us from our own sin. Exactly. Good point. Yeah. To to keep the law. Right. That's what we learned about. I think it was the week before about Jesus when when he was coming. He was saying, or actually that was last week with John uh, chapter fifteen with the vine. When Jesus says, "I'm the true vine." Remember, we studied about Israel was the corrupt vine, according to, to Isaiah and Jeremiah. Israel was the vine that had gone, gone wild, basically. So what Jesus is saying is that I can do what all of you can't do collectively. Like, I individually, I am the way, I am the vine, it's me. He's not saying that to be arrogant, but Jesus is saying that salvation and perfection is found nowhere else other than in myself. So, so we've got the humanness, right? And then we go to the redemption must not be simply human that's a typo if it is to have infinite application okay if you're just a regular person then you can only do what regular people can do and in the sight of god like the great philosopher Matt Foley said from Saturday Night Live years ago, is a whole lot of jack squat, right? Like collectively, that's all that we can do. So you've got to have somebody who's human, but they can't just be a regular human. How do you accomplish that? The virgin birth. Amen? I mean, I, I just think like philosophically, like if you're talking to a thinker, this just, this adds up. And that we, if you write this down, there's a uh, early Christian named Gregory of Nazian Zeus, alright? And he said, what has not been assumed 
cannot be redeemed. In other words, when we'll look at Philippians 2 in just a moment, when Jesus assumed human flesh, when he came in human flesh, if he did not assume humanity like he did, coming as one of us, then he could never redeem them because he was never one of them. Unless you go and make an Islamic argument that God just does whatever he wants, whether it's wrong or right. That's the Islamic position. How do we know the will of God? Whatever happens. Well, why does whatever happen happen? Because God wants it to. Well, why does God want it to? Because he just wants it to. Whereas in the Bible, we know that God, it is impossible for him to lie. And it would be impossible for God to violate his own nature, which is holiness. For example, God, based upon who he is, could not just say, you know what, I just feel like forgiving all y'all. Kind of be like a big Santa Claus and say, you know what, just don't worry about it. We're good. We're good. Just let bygones be bygones. Alright, let's renew this thing over again. Why couldn't God do that based upon what we know of who he is? Right. Yeah, he's, he's holy. And some people say, hold on, Jeff, are we saying that there's things that God can't do? And if we say there's things that God can't do, then that means that maybe God's not God. Well, it's like, it's like saying that, and we've used this before, that let's say we have a brilliant mathematician who's so smart, he or she can never get one question wrong, right? Or let's say a basketball player who's so good they can never lose a game. Or a boxer who's so strong they can never lose a fight. When we say that there's certain things that God will not slash cannot do, it's because if he did them, he wouldn't be God. He would be like us. He'd be a shady operator, right? Like if, if God didn't need to pay for sin, then really what standard of justice do we have to look up to? Think about that. If God is holy and he's our ultimate standard of, of right and wrong, but yet God's kind of like, well, I don't really want to you know, send this Messiah to suffer. Just don't worry about it. Well, that's like us, right? And even our law, as messed up as it is, says... If you do the crime, you got to what? Do the time. you got to pay something. There's got to be justice. And that's kind of like a, a mirror image of who God is. So um, here's what Millard Erickson says. In case you're confused, do not let your heart be troubled. He says, this is, speaking of the unity of the natures of Christ, uh, one of the most difficult of all theological problems Ranking with, check this out, this is crazy. Ranking with the Trinity and the paradox of human free will and divine sovereignty. Okay? How many of you guys were confused? You can be honest. Alright? Honest. When we studied the Trinity, were you confused at any time during that talk? Let me see your hand. If you were here, remember it. Okay. Alright, still am. Okay. (laughs) Honesty. Alright? Honesty is good for the soul. Okay, remember that three-week study we did on the fact that if God knows the future, if God is sovereign over the future, but yet we're morally responsible for our choices? How many of you guys were a little bit confused at that at any time? Okay, all right, more honesty. And the rest of you guys probably weren't here. Raise your hand. Okay, so here's the thing. When we come to some of this stuff, don't feel like we've got to understand everything perfectly. Let us be... um, Comforted, and this is not in your notes, um, from, from Mark Twain. Okay? The great, the great theologian, Mark Twain. And this is, this is so profound. This has really helped me when I study the Bible. He said, it's not what I don't understand 
in the Bible that troubles me? Yeah, not the second part. It's what I do understand in the Bible that troubles me. The fact that, Trish, God is holy. And if I get by myself for five minutes and think about my life, I realize that I am far from that. And so if God has created everything and he's created me and I know that I should do the good, but like Paul in Romans 7, when I want to do good, I don't do. And the thing that I hate, I do. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And I'm going to one day have to meet him. And if you're not saved, that's a scary, scary thought. Just the basic things, and we understand that, we're going to try to branch out and understand all of this, not for the purpose that we can know it, right? Because we don't want to have selfish knowledge. The reason why we're doing all this is so that we can explain it to people who have questions, and they can come to faith in Jesus. So all of this, um, the groundwork is evangelistic. So uh, how should we understand the person of Christ? Number one, the incarnation, Jesus coming um, as a human was more of a gaining of human attributes than a giving up of divine attributes. Go with me to second or excuse me Philippians chapter 2 beginning there in verse 7. The Bible says, "Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men." Right? So nowhere here in the text does the Bible say that Jesus ceased being deity. Right? Like ceased being God. Number two, the union of the two natures, Jesus' humanity and his divinity, meant that they did not function independently. And the Bible verse for that is no Bible verse for that. You know why? Because there's no Bible verses about a schizophrenic Jesus. Aren't you glad about that? And wouldn't that be really weird to pick up the Bible and Jesus is like freaking out, you know, going to the disciples, what should I do? I don't know what to do. Can somebody give me a point? That would just be bizarre. So the reason why we mention this is because there are some people who will say this. Okay. So the way we understand Jesus is when he's doing things like, let the little children come under me, uh, raising little girl from the dead, uh, healing the woman with the issue of blood. That's Jesus' divine nature. But when Jesus is telling the Pharisees that you're all broods of vipers and you're going to hell, and when Jesus goes into the temple and knocks over all the money changers' tables, that's Jesus' humanness bleeding through. What may be a problem with someone having trying to separate like that? In other words, what if somebody came up to you and that's the, well, you know, here's what, this over here and this over here. Well, what may be some responses? This is just called quick draw apologetics. That's the way that the question would be phrased, right? So often people, and, and this comes from liberal scholarships, and you, you, I hope, hopefully we won't hear this on, because most, most Christian TV today, it's fairly conservative in the sense that they believe that Jesus is the Jesus of the Bible. Most of them, some of them, they get off into some, some areas of the church constantly asking for, or not the church, the specific ministry asking for money. 
instead of being plugged in with a local church that gives to the community, right? Get off on that. But often when people tell us, well, this is what Jesus did with his divinity, and this is what Jesus did with his humanity, it's almost always the real merciful things are from the divinity side, and the things that have to do with sin is really bad are from the human side. Don't you think that that displays more of our own prejudices? When somebody tries to, to, to paint Jesus in a different light, it's always our prejudices that seems to elevate the things in Jesus that make us feel good and devalue the things that Jesus said that convict us of our own sin. So if anybody ever tries to get you to pull away from Christ by trying to divide what cannot be divided, then just go ahead and talk to them about why do you think this is more divine and this is more human. And something else, I don't believe it's in your notes, but something very helpful with understanding the two natures of Jesus is this. It's a sentence, I don't think it's in there, but that Jesus is a very complex person. Hang on to that statement. Jesus is a very complex person. We're talking about someone, we've heard this, a lot of us for years, who didn't have a physical father. Who was born... Of a virgin. It gets even crazier. Who never sinned. And he had brothers and sisters. Think back upon your childhood. If you had brothers or sisters. And then again. He had a mom that was forgetful. When he was 12. And he was in there like. Owning the theologians of the day. She comes in flipping out. And his dad was there. We know that Joseph. Didn't really say to you. He was just there. We don't know if Joseph was awkwardly there or if he was there just approving him. I mean, Jesus had dealt with all sorts of things, but yet he never sinned. And not only did he not sin, but he did the right things of commission to the perfect letter of the law. And then he suffered on a cross, right? This is stuff that we hear, but I don't know if sometimes we grab a hold of what it means. He suffered all of that brutality from the soldiers and all of the cursing. And the Bible says they wagged their heads, which would be like modern day smack talk when Jesus was on the cross. And then he dies. And then three days later, God supernaturally raises him from the dead. So Jesus has a glorified body now and he appeared to people for 40 days and now he ascended. You're not talking about your average Joe who works for the phone company. All right. So when, when people try to sit here and dissect Jesus, something very helpful for us to understand is when we speak about Jesus, God, and man, we're talking about a very complex person. Not in the sense of being bad, but there's a lot of factors that go into that. And one thing that we understand is that he was God. The resurrection demonstrates that. And he was, based upon all the verses that we looked at, like he felt compassion. He cried. Lazarus died, all of the human factors. Even he was in the garden and he was crying out to God the Father in desperation. All of that, Jesus was human, but he was God in the flesh. Now for people who want to try to pick that apart, just let them know the way you pick it apart is not an evidence of who Jesus was, but it's an evidence of your own prejudice. Okay. Um, think of it like this. Have you ever done three-legged races before? Remember how awkward that was at first? If you don't, And the key to three-legged race is when you swing your leg, you both press on each other's in shoulder, right? 
Um, when we think of Jesus, as we read in Philippians uh, chapter 2, when Jesus came in the form of a servant, it's like Jesus had all the power in the world, but he voluntarily limited himself for a certain time, kind of like, let's say you have the fastest runner in the world, like a three-legged race. They limit themselves to work with the confines of that of that race. In the same way, Jesus limited himself so that he could um, do this. But this statement uh, should be there in your notes. Jesus voluntarily, we could say, quote-unquote, restricted himself for a specific time in order to accomplish a specific purpose. He did not have to come, but he did. And he did, it's for the glory of God, and God's love, God's love for us. So number three, the helpful way to think about Jesus' nature is to think top down, not bottom up. Don't think this way. How could a human ever be God? Just as an admission, is that the way that we think sometimes? That's what gets us like, how could a human be? Think about it like, like this. Um, if that's the way that we're thinking, what we're going to think is how much could you add in order to become God? Well, we could never do anything to ever become God, right? Unless we're Mormons and we're deceived. Rather ask, could God become a human? You see how the questions that we ask frame the discussion? And here's the thing, is there anything impossible with God? Anything good? Well, no. So if God desires to come as a human, is that impossible for God who can do all things to do such? This question for me really helps me, y'all. I don't know if it does for you, but not asking that question, but asking the right one, could God who can do all things Come as a human. In other words, what we're saying here, what we're really saying with this question, is could God do something that we and our scientists could not? Have you ever heard that really old preacher's joke? This has been around, I think, I think Moses told this to Joshua in the Bible when he was passing it on to Joshua. Like, that's how long it's been around. But it was about the scientist who was gonna, you know, prove to God with his experiments and so forth what they could do with dirt and whatnot. And, and before they got ready to do their duel, God says, go ahead and get your own dirt. <laughs> right. I mean, that's a butchering of a pre, but it's, it's, that is a stalwart of Baptist faith, that joke, all right? So what we're saying here is, therefore, God becoming a human, because God can do all things, is not impossible. And I'm really glad that we serve a God who is that. And what's so cool, um, I do not do this as often as I should. This is just a little way of application. Um, I would encourage you to keep a prayer journal. Um, the times that I have in my life praying for things, and then you see a week or two, a month, maybe maybe it's six months down the road, you see the Lord provide that. It is absolutely awesome. And it's like that old song, count your many blessings, count them one by one, count your many blessings, see what God has done. So record the blessings, all right? So here we go. Here's our application questions. We'll discuss this. Uh, how can... A clearer view of Jesus' humanity help us deal with temptations. What do you think? I think it's like, if you're being tempted, the best thing to do would be to think that if God can do this, then surely he can get me through that like that. Awesome. Awesome. I think too, like, because um, 
think it's wrong to think that Jesus um, didn't experience or go through anything that we've gone through. So it's not like um, he went through it and it was easier on him, and so it's different, and obviously he'd be able to handle it with God, but he went through exactly what we go through, and he feels the pain, or he's already felt the pain that we felt. And he made it through that, and he made it through so much worse than that, worse than we could ever imagine. So, if he's done it, we can do it, mm-hmm. and we have him to pray to, and you know, he's given us other people to talk to about it. So I think that mm-hmm. should be able to help us to know that he's made it through so much worse than we have, and he's not going to do us anything that we can't handle. Mm. Awesome. Awesome. And I think this goes back to our discussion of Jesus' human nature. And I think within, um, this goes back to European culture, um, we're a lot less emotional by and large. And you can translate that a little bit to American culture um, than, than some other cultures around the world in regards to sharing our emotions and um, expressing affection. Not anything weird, but um, Jesus was, was the perfect person And yet Jesus, it was okay for him, depending upon the situation, to weep in public. Now for us, most of the time, there's not anything more embarrassing than not being able to control your emotions in public. But that's the way we look at it. Control our emotions. For Jesus, it was not only okay, but it was right because Jesus did all things that were pleasing in the Father's sight, to weep for Lazarus. So I think that just emotionally, understanding what should be the the true expression of human emotions, look at Jesus. We see courage, we see mercy, and we see strong passion towards the right things, to the point that it often leads to tears. Desperation, the garden. Crying out to God, sweating blood. That seems very foreign to a lot of us who are Americans who are sometimes, even in our worship services, very stoic. It's not saying that you have to be a crier. It's saying that if there are those times that come, that it is entirely within the okay corral okay, to, to do that because Jesus did it. So, number two, what can we learn from Jesus' prayer life? Just the whole scope of it. Did you hear what Ben said? That's a, can you say it again, Ben? If the, the one who was in perfect union with God needed prayer that regularly, what makes me think I can do anything at all without a regular prayer life? Hmm. You, know, you know what makes me, just being honest, is pride. 
if we, if we boil it down and take all the bells and whistles off of it, when we don't pray, Jesus got up early in the morning to pray and see. Not just when He was about to suffer the worst excruciating torment. Not physically, necessarily. But within the soul, within the emotions and who He was. If Jesus did that, it's, it's a sign of humility. And the times that I go prayerless throughout the day, it's simply a sign of pride. I don't have to say this, I don't have to verbalize it, but what I'm saying when I don't pray is, God, I've got it without you. Which that's the base of all sin. So it's a very convicting statement, very, thank you for saying that. That's, that's awesome. <clears throat> Isaiah 53.3, speaking of Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So the question, what can we learn from Jesus' unpopularity? Can we all agree that when it came down to the wire at the very end, that Jesus, if we could put it mildly, was an unpopular person in the world? All that was given for Jesus by way of a defense is Peter's one stroke. Taking off the ear. After Jesus put Malchus's servant's ear back on, reattached it, Imagine the draw the jaws that hit the ground when he did that. After that, his buddies fled. The crowds were not there. So, based upon this text and what we know what Jesus did, what can we learn? Maybe what are some truths that we can learn from Jesus' unpopularity with people? That's a great point, Trish. And something I would encourage all of you with, when you when we do go through times like that, here's the guy who's got our back. So when we take things to the Lord in prayer, I don't I don't mean this to be some type of demeaning paraphrase of Jesus. Please, please don't understand it that way. But Jesus, in a sense, through all of these passages that speak about his suffering, he's saying, I know. Not only do I know, but I can, I can track with what you're saying. I've been there. Do you remember what I went through? The way I look at being human, 
is that he has walked in my shoes before I have. So there's nothing that I can go through that he doesn't already know about. That's right. That's right. Hebrews chapter 4. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Wish we had more time. Here's the last statement by Wayne Gruden uh, referring to our discussion before this, uh, this uh, referring to Sunday and what happened. Uh, Will you be happy to join with thousands of others in worshiping around his throne in heaven? Do you delight in worshiping him now?